0: Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today. Truly we pray that your word will go out faithfully, that it will to our hearts, that through the Holy Spirit we will take it to heart and to be encouraged and warned at the same time. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, people by and large are creatures of habit. Don't you agree? Uh, as I get older, I realize that uh, more and more Uh, You don't really enjoy changes in life, right? Maybe when you're young, you like change all all the time. But actually, we don't really like change, right? Because change is very stressful. So I always tell people, and I always recommend to people, that you never have more than one change happening in your life at the same time. Right? So, you know, when you get a new job, it's not the same time, the right time to also get married. Right? And when you get married, maybe it's not the right time to also undertake a new course of part-time study. And uh, maybe we use, undertake this course of part time study, it's not the right time to also have a child. And if you have a child, maybe it's not also the right time to get promoted. You know? So, you know, because if there's too many things happening at the same time, it's very stressful, isn't it? Because change is very stressful. And at the same time, uh, as people of God, as people who uh, have faith, when we have change, I also notice that when things change and it puts stresses in your life, it can affect your Christian life. So I've seen it when people go overseas to study what happens is their faith can be affected. Uh, When people start their NS, uh, their national service, their faith can also be affected. When people start a family to get married, also their faith can be affected. So today, as we come to the the very last book of Deuteronomy, the last sections of Deuteronomy, we see that God's people are also under great stress. Uh, They're faced with very great stress. It's one of the most stressful times in her national life. And why is that? Because she's going to enter into the promised land. That's a great change, isn't it? Because all the rest of 40 years they've been wandering around now, they're finally going to and uh, moving into their home. But more than that, if you look at this passage right at the very beginning, the most stressful thing I think, if I was Israelite, if I was God's people during this time, is they're going to the land without their leader, isn't it? They're going to the land without Moses. So it says there in chapter 31, verse 1 and 2, isn't it? Uh, right at the very end, Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I am now 120 years old and I am no longer going able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. Now, I think that's a really sad thing, isn't it? It's a really sad thing. Uh, if you look back at uh, Numbers chapter 20, Numbers chapter 20, uh, you'll see that the account of why is it Moses is not able to enter into the land. And if you look at Moses chapter 20, it's up here on the slide. It begins very innocently. It begins very innocently. God tells Moses, "Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. And you will bring water out of the rock for the community, so that they and the livestock can drink." Very innocent, everyday occurrence, right? Walking in the desert and they need water. God says, "Speak to the rock, and the rock will provide water." But the problem is, uh, God. Uh, tells Moses to do this, but Moses, you know, he's very irritated with the people. He's very frustrated with the people. When you read the account in Numbers 20, it's very—you can see Moses getting more and more frustrated because the people are very angry. They're saying, "You know, where's the water? Where's the water? I want water. You, you know, you brought us here. Where's the water? God is trying to make us thirsty. God is—God is trying to kill us." Okay. And what Moses does is, instead of speaking to the rock, he gets his staff and he hits the rock, right? And you think, well, that's not really—I mean, that's. That's not that bad, right? I mean, but, but actually, in God's eyes, He sees that as rebellion. And God says, as a result of Moses' rebellion, because of this one act where He didn't obey God, Moses is unable to enter into the Promised Land. Now, I think that's so sad, isn't it? It's so sad because here it is, finally, Moses, after 40 years of wandering on the desert, He can see the Promised Land. You just go up to the mountaintop. I can't remember uh, in the Bible study. Somebody said they've actually been to Mount Nebo. And you can see from Mount Nebo into the Promised Land. You can see it all there. It's all in front of you. You can smell it when the wind is blowing the right direction. But he can't enter. All because of that one act of sinfulness. And, and, And imagine the frustration that he must have felt because of the sinfulness of the people. But at the same time, while it's a very sad part of life for Moses, it is a very stressful time for the Israelites, God's people. Because now they are going to the promised land and they are not going in with the only leader that they've ever known. Now how important is as uh, Moses to the Israelites? Well he he is their everything, isn't it? Because for that generation that Moses is speaking to, he is the only leader that they have ever known. So you look up here on this slide, can okay, you look up here on the slide? Don't forget Moses has been their only leader ever since they Oh, no power. Okay, follow the red line. Okay, ever since Egypt, okay, ever since Egypt, all the way down to Mount Sinai, all the way around the Promised Land, all the way up to just before they come into the Promised Land with the next generation. He's been the only leader for the last 40 years. Imagine that. I mean, uh, we feel very dependent upon uh, our leaders. Isn't it? Just last week, Go King Sui died. And right, Goke Sui, you know, you read the newspaper, you read the uh, you hear the radio, how what a great man he was. You know how he was a very compassionate man, but yeah, he was a very honest man, he was a visionary. And uh, when you read the newspaper, people saw, you say, you know, well, there'll never be someone else like Gokeng Sui. Right, so wait, what what who in the next generation is going to be like him? Who like that is going to actually lead the nation? Now uh, not comparing uh I'll tell us unfavorably to go king sui, but imagine Moses had been the ruler, I'm not the ruler, but the leader of Israel for 40 years. He had spoken to God on Mount Sinai on behalf of the Israelites. He had spent 40 days and 40 nights bowing down before God and begging him for mercy on the Israelites. He had been their leader, he had been their intermediary before God and now he was going And I imagine, what would you say if you were Moses during this time? What would you say to encourage the people now that you're leaving? Well, I think that that if you look at this passage, come back to uh, chapter 31, you'll see that chapter 31, he repeats the same thing twice, isn't it? He says to the Israelite people, verse 6, Be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what he says to God's people. He says, look, I might be leaving, but the important thing is God's not leaving, isn't it? And that is the most important thing. He says to Joshua, look what he says to Joshua in verse 8. The Lord himself goes before you and be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Now, you notice he repeats the same thing twice. He says the same thing twice, right? Do not be discouraged. Do not be afraid, God goes with you. And I think that that's such an important lesson, isn't it? Because ultimately, it is not about Moses, it is not about Joshua, it is about God. So you look at your uh, your Bible, I don't know about your, your, your uh, version, my NIV begins, chapter 31, what does it say there? Joshua to succeed Moses, right? If you look at your Bible, is that what your subtitle says? Joshua to succeed, to succeed Moses? Actually, I think that's the wrong title, isn't it? It's not about Joshua succeeding ta- uh, Moses. It's all about Moses telling the people that God is the one who's always been the leader of the people. You see, look at what it says there in verse 4. Right? The Lord will do to them what he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, whom he destroyed along with their land. It's not Moses who destroyed the kings of the Amorites. It's not Joshua who destroyed the kings of the Amorites. It is God who destroys the kings of the Amorites. So if you look up here on this slide, see the Amorites were the people living east of the River Jordan. So to get to where they were now, if you read the earlier parts of Deuteronomy, God had led the Israelites to defeat them. And Moses says, no, it's not me, it's not me who's led you to victory, and neither will it be Joshua who will lead you to victory when you enter into the Promised Land. It is God who will lead you into victory. And I think that that's such an important lesson for God's people in the past and even for God's people today. Because, you see, if I were to ask you, what is the pillar of your confidence as a Christian? What is the foundation of your faith? What, where is your confidence? It should never be in a man. It should never be in a woman. It should never be in a human being. It cannot be in me, it cannot be in your Bible study leader, it cannot be in your youth leader, it cannot be in your children's church leader. It must be in God alone. So I remember, the first person that ever evangelized me, and uh, actually, no, that's not right, isn't it? Because many people evangelize me. But the person that, that actually sowed the seed and, and, and reaped the fruit, right, so to speak, was, uh, was Joshua Ng, uh, the guy that spoke to us in our church camp many years ago, right? And he told me once, how the first person that actually sowed the seed and actually read the, the fruit in his life as a Christian was his youth leader. Right? His youth leader had shared the Bible with him and he had become a Christian as a result. But he shared with me one day how his youth leader uh, many years later fell away as a Christian and how he was very sad about it that his youth leader had fallen away as a Christian. But that didn't stop him, Joshua Ng, from going from being a doctor to being a pastor. Why? Because his faith was not based on his youth leader, isn't it? The the, the the confidence he had in Christ was not based on another human being. At the same time, I remember when I went to theological college, many of you know I went to theological college in uh, Sydney in Australia. In my second year in theological college, uh, I had uh, these British friends of mine, I went from Singapore to Sydney to study, right? They f- went from England, to Sydney to study theological college, and they brought their families to them. And one day, they were very, very upset. Very upset. Why? Because their pastor, uh, a man called Roy Clemens, I don't know whether you've heard Roy Clemens, but he was a very, very renowned evangelical leader. Uh, he was reputed to be one of the best evangelical preachers in the world. Right? No less an authority than Don Carson actually said that he was one of the best preachers that he'd ever heard. He preached in America, South Africa, Australia, England, everywhere he's been preaching. But in the second year of my theological college, my British friends received an urgent email from their church in England saying that he had been suspended indefinitely because he had an inappropriate relationship with another member of staff. But did my co- my friends and classmates, did they fall out from uh, theological college. No, they didn't. They were very sad inside because their pastor had done this. But they still continued, this isn't it? Their faith. They still continued with their education. And today, they are pastoring other churches. And why is that? I think it's because they've taken to heart what Moses says here, isn't it? The leader, the leader is not the human being. The leader of us as in our Christian walk is not a person. It is God Himself. And I think that that's so important for us in Singapore because so many times I meet Christians and they put so much faith in their leader. I think it comes from being Asian, no? Because you know, in the West, especially in Australia, they're very anti-authoritarian, right? So you know, the, 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 the pastor, the leader, ah, yeah, it doesn't matter. He's just like my, my mate, right? Okay? But you know, in Singapore, we, we put the leader up, you know, and, 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 and rightly so, right? We respect him. Or, uh, you know, in the case of uh, other people, we respect that, the human being, but we must also see that that human being cannot be God to us. right? So many times, you know, you sp- I speak to some Christians and they say, oh, what church do you go to? And then I notice they never say, I go to this church or that church. They say, I go to this pastor's church. Do you notice that? They say, I go to my pastor, so-and-so. As if, you know, that's, that's, the, that's where the, the strength of their faith comes from. But that must never be the case. We must never put so much faith in a human being that if that person falls, our faith falls along with them. And I think that's what Moses is saying to the people there. Look, you're going to the promised land, but your victory your success is not based on me. Your victory your success is based on God. But he goes on to say, in the next section, in verse 9 onwards, that it is not just... God who will determine their victory. But God's word, isn't it? God's word. So look at what it says there from verse 9 to verse 13. So Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, in the year of cancelling debts, during the Feast of the Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Assemble the people, men and women and children, and the aliens living in town so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Now, if you remember, there was the Ark of the Covenant, right? Do you remember the Ark? Okay, the Ark, you know, like the Raiders of the Lost Ark, that sort of thing, right? Okay, But it looks very much like that. And inside were the two stone tablets that, that Moses had brought down from the mountain. Do you remember that? Okay, But now, Moses gives them the law and he says, keep this law together with these stone tablets in the Ark. Okay, He says that he gave it to them. And so what he's saying here is, look, every seven years, read the law. Now, when we think of the law, what do we think of? We think of the Ten Commandments, right? But he's not talking about the Ten Commandments at all. The law that Moses is talking about is the book of Deuteronomy. It's the book of Deuteronomy. Because in chapter 1, look, chapter 1, up here. Right, it says there, uh, chapter 1, right? East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying, okay, and he goes on, and notice there's no law in it. He's talking about the past. So the law is actually everything from chapter 1 of Deuteronomy all the way to the end of of Deuteronomy. Okay? Now, why does he want them to read the law every 7 years? Now you might sort of think, well, that's kind of weird, right? Does that mean we only need to meet for church once every 7 years? Where we read the Bible? Or maybe you only need to do Bible study once every 7 years or do your quiet time once every 7 years? No, he's not saying that at all. What he's saying is, the law of Deuteronomy, the reading of Deuteronomy, must be the centerpiece of the nation. Must be the centerpiece of the nation. Because you think of ourselves, right? What You know, as Singaporeans, what do we celebrate every year? Uh, National Day, isn't it? That's the centerpiece of the nation. And during National Day, what do we do? Well, there's fireworks, there's the National Day speech, uh, there's the parade, isn't it? Well, God says to his people that at the center, at the heart of their national festival is to be the reading of the book of Deuteronomy. The, The book of Deuteronomy, God's word, is on the most important celebration of their nationhood, supposed to be the center of their lives. And it's very symbolic, isn't it? You think about it. Because on a national day, when God's word is read, what is it saying to the people? It is saying that God's word is very important. It is very important to them. And that's why it is not meant to be just read once every seven years, but much earlier in the book of Deuteronomy it really told the people that they must have God's word always in their head. Alright, so you look up here, you should have remembered this earlier on. All right, chapter 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk to them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and my case. I remember, I think Sweet Tang was the one who preached on this passage before, right? And he was saying, yeah, I mean, it's not literally, you know, stick it in your forehead because unless you look at the mirror, how can you see it, right? But what is it actually saying? It's saying that it must always be with you. So he's not saying that, okay, just once every seven years read the Bible. He's saying that this word must be the center of your personal life and your national life. Chapter 8. And he, he said, look, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. But Chapter 32. When Moses finished reciting these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words I solemnly declare to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you, they are your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Now what does that mean for us today? I think that it's saying that for God's people, God's word is really important. You must be listening to God's word you must be having it at the center of your life. I was reading this book recently. Uh, i like to recommend it to everyone, not just men. But it's called Disciplines of a Godly Man. Disciplines of a Godly Man. And in here, he says that uh, nowadays, because of the busyness of life, uh, I, I want to quote what he says. He says that we are Christians without Christian minds. Uh, we're Christians without Christian minds. He says that for many people, many men in particular, they suffer from spiritual anorexia. You know what anorexia is, right? Anorexia is where you don't eat enough food. You deny yourself food, right? In, a, in an effort to get slim and good looking, okay? But he says that for men, they have spiritual anorexia. They, 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 they do not feed themselves with spiritual food. And he sort of says, you know, you know, you ask yourself the question, how often do you read God's word? How often have you read the Old Testament? Okay, I won't embarrass you by asking you to put your hands. Okay, How many of you have read through the whole Old Testament? How many of you have uh, read through the whole New Testament? Right, because he's saying, the Bible, God's word, must be the center of your life. You must read it, you must feed on it. You know, look at what God said before. You must you must talk about it as you sit at home, as you when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. It must be in your bloodstream. All right? And he says, you know, many times, many men, women as well, right, I presume, will say, you know, I'm, I'm very busy. You know? I'm very busy. I'm just too busy to read God's word. Uh, got family, got responsibility, things to do. Then he gives this illustration of uh, this soldier, uh, what's his name? Oh, where is it here? General Lieutenant General William K. Harrelson, the most decorated soldier in the 30th Infantry Division uh, in World War Two, and then he also fought in the Korean War. Anyway, this guy, uh, Lieutenant General William K. Harrelson, he became a Christian when he was 20 years old, and for every year after that, he read the Old Testament once a year and the New Testament four times. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? So even during wartime, he still kept up his Bible reading. He would still read his Old Testament once a year, all the way through, and his New Testament four times a year. And he did that all the way through till he was 90 years old. Now imagine if he can be a general in a time of war, and he can still read his Bible, so much so that he can finish the whole Bible through, then what excuse do we have, isn't it? What, what excuse can we have? Can we say that we are busier than this man fighting in uh, World War Two? Can we say that we are, have more, responsi- more weighty responsibilities than this man fighting in the Korean War? No, isn't it? We can't. And I think that's what Moses is saying here. He says, look, God is with you, but as you enter the land, God's word must be with you as well. Now, As we came to the very last part of chapter 31, uh, as uh, was read to us by Johnson, it's a bit like an anticlimax, isn't it? Uh, For those of you who've done the Bible study. Because God is with them, God's Word is with them, but how does the book of Deuteronomy end? It ends not happily ever after, but unhappily ever after, isn't it? Because as we read the very last part, of uh, chapter 31, and all the way through in the Song of Moses, it predicts, God says to them, you will forsake me, and you will prostitute yourself against me. That's what it says there, in verse 16, isn't it? Chapter 31. The Lord said to Moses, you are going to with your fathers, and what will happen to these people? These people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they're entering. They will forsake me, and break the covenant I made with them. What a depressing story, isn't it? You come all the way through, we've done Deuteronomy from chapter one all the way to chapter 34. And what happens? They fail. They will fail. God predicts that they will fail. In fact, when you look at the sermon, right, there are three sermons in the book of Deuteronomy, which is up here. Okay? The first sermon is all about the sin of the first generation who died in the desert. The second sermon is about how God is generous and chooses and loves Israelites and how they must live in the land. But the last sermon, the last song ends again with the sin of the subsequent generation. You notice how there's a symmetry to it? They are exactly the same as the first generation. They will rebel against God. They will turn away from God. They will, they will, they will reject God and God will punish them. So how do we conclude the book of Deuteronomy then? Do we just uh, end up and say, "Well, we feel very sorry for the Israelites"? Do we say, "Oh, you know, very sad line." You know, it's like those European movies you watch. You know, European movies always have sad endings. You know this? It's not like Hollywood, right? European movies, heroine or hero dies at the end, right? Is that why? Well, I mean, is that is that is that what Deuteronomy is like? What is the lesson for us? That you know, the Christian life will always end up in failure. That there will be nothing good that comes out of it. No, I don't think so. I think the secret is, we cannot save ourselves, but God can save us. You see, if you come back with me again to chapter 30, this is very important, if you have Bibles, chapter 30 is very important. Look at what it says with me in verse 4, chapter 30 verse 4, right? Because it is not God's people who will save them, but God who will save them. Chapter 30, verse 4 says this. Okay, you need your Bibles, right? Remember God's word is very important. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers and He will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love Him with all your heart and all your soul and all and live, right? So what he's saying here is, God sees that His people, even though God is with them, even though He's given them His word, they will still fall. But God will give them a new heart. He'll give them a heart operation. He'll circumcise their hearts. And I think that we see that. In two ways, as Christians today, right? The first way is that God acted for us by sending Jesus. See, Moses he sinned, he died, he failed to go into the promised land. King David he was adulterer, he was a murderer. Solomon, well, his foreign wives led him to worship other gods. But today we have Jesus, and Jesus is superior in every way, isn't it? Jesus, if you look up here in the slide. We're not going to spend much time on this because it will take the whole, the, the, another sermon. I view here. Hebrews in the book. Hebrews, right? Different chapters. Chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 12. Jesus is superior in everywhere. He is the Savior. He is the High Priest. He provides atonement. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Okay? So you look up here on this slide. Can okay, You look at all those points. Verse 17. For this reason. He had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and he might make atonement for the sins of the people. That's what Moses couldn't do, you see. The people sinned, but what could Moses do? He could only beg God and ask for mercy. He couldn't provide atonement for the people's sin. Chapter 3 Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus the apostle and the high priest whom he confessed. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as faithful was fa- uh, Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Jesus has been found to be worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. See, where is our destination? Not the promised land, our destination is it? Heaven, isn't it? And we fix our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is God. He is our Apostle and High Priest who brings us into heaven where he is right now. Chapter 12 Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus is our author and perfecter of faith. Literally the word here is our leader and perfecter of our faith. He is the one who brings us into faith. He is the one who perfects us in the faith. See, Jesus does something that Moses could never do. Because Jesus is God, isn't he? He brings us into faith. He sustains us in faith. He perfects us in faith. But not only that, not only do we have Jesus now, but we also have the Holy Spirit, isn't it? So you look at this slide up here the Israelites only had God with them and, the whole, and, and God's word but now what do we have? we have Jesus and the Holy Spirit and together with Jesus and the Holy Spirit we have that confidence that we can, we will not fail like the previous generation you see the Holy Spirit actually circumcises our heart and makes us willing and able to keep God's law isn't it? now i do not sure whether, I know I don't, I don't, none of you actually know me before I I became a Christian, isn't it? No, I don't think so, right? Now, if you had met me before I became a Christian, I would be a very different person. Which I wouldn't be a very different person. I was a very different person. I used to swear all the time. Hard to to believe, right? Every second word, every second sentence coming out of my mouth was a swear word. Because, you know, I live in boarding school in Australia, so that's the way people talk. Right? Okay? (laughs) So, you know, and then... uh, you know, I wasn't a very nice person. I remember what, you know, one of my friends, I, I, I did something very bad. To, I, I, you know, I betrayed that friend and things like that. I remember meeting someone just yesterday who knew me before I became a Christian. And I remember once I had a conversation with this person and his wife, and they said that, you know, you're completely different to what you were when we knew you before. Now, why is that? Is that just because of myself? I don't think so, isn't it? It's because of the Holy Spirit to me. The Holy Spirit, me changing me and renewing me and making me want to live God's way. A pastor once said that his friend came to visit his church and he said, You know, Christians, you're so disgustingly good, right? And then why is that? Why are we so disgustingly good? Because, not because we we want to put on an act, right? But because deep down inside, the Holy Spirit is transforming us and changing us to live God's way. In the, in the New Testament, which is, which is up here just quickly again, right, it says that, that the Holy Spirit helps us to guard the good and deposit the pattern of living, the faith and love in Christ Jesus that we have with the help of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. In Titus chapter 3, right, it says that you know, at one time we too were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us not through the righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, notice how we are washed clean and renewed by the Holy Spirit. So in conclusion, as we look at this passage, as we come to the very end of Deuteronomy, it's both a warning and also a source of confidence, isn't it? It's a warning because... Do not put your faith in humanity and do not put your faith in a human leader, but put your faith in God, isn't it? That's what it's saying to us. Do not make the same mistake as Israelites, as they entered into the promised land. And also, it teaches us the importance of God's word. That we must be soaked, soaked and overfull with God's word. But I think we should be thankful as well and confident as Christians because we have something that God's people didn't have that. We have Jesus. And He is our captain. He is our leader forever. And He, bring us, he will bring us into the promised land. Not an earthly promised land, but a heavenly one. And we also have the Holy Spirit. So, conclusion. I want to share with you this story about this uh, friend that I had when I was working before. And he has a very strange view of Christianity, you know, because for him, the Christian life is all about the service, the church service at the end of the week. You know, he'll feel very down. He really looks forward to the church service to be re- re-energized, like a you know rechargeable battery, right? He needs to be revitalized by listening to the upbeat, positive thinking message that he gets in church. But that's very different, I think, from what this message is telling us, isn't it? Because God is always with us, whether we are in church today whether you're at work on Monday, whether you're at home on Friday night, God is with you, isn't it? And God's word should be with you all the time, not just on Sunday morning. It should be shaping you in everything that you do. And your focus shouldn't be just on that service, on the weekend, or the songs that you sing, or the pastor, but your focus should be on Jesus. And you should be guided by the Holy Spirit in everything you do. Now, I was reading this book, Why Great Men Fall. And I read something really shocking in it. Because he shares about a pastor in America, this can only happen in America, because I, I don't believe this can happen in Singapore, right? Who shared with him that he has a drug addiction problem. Why is that? He takes cocaine before he preaches. Right? He takes cocaine before he preaches. Why is that? Because he needs more energy, right? In order to, to get everybody worked up in the crowd, you know, he, he needs that buzz to get really, you know, to, to really. Get everybody going the service. But why do you need that? You see, because that's not what the Bible says. The power of the Christian walk doesn't come from you know, the preacher having cocaine in his bloodstream, but the power comes from having God in your life, from having the Holy Spirit in your life, by having God's Word around you and in you all of your life, isn't it? So I think let's learn the lessons of Deuteronomy here, That the secret is not Moses, the secret is God. And the secret is not Moses' word, it is God's word. And the focus for their life is not Moses, but the focus is on Jesus. And we are guided by the Holy Spirit in everything that we do. And that makes us want to do the right thing. Not how much do we have to do, but you know, it's like we want to do what is right because the Holy Spirit inhabits us. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. heavenly father as we come before you today truly help us to see that you are our leader that you have sent us jesus who is our author and perfecter of our faith that you have given us your word and may we ever desire to read it and not give excuses May we be filled with the Holy Spirit and guided in our Christian walk. That we have an inward desire to do what is right. To please you in everything that we do. And not to please the flesh. Dear Father, help us to see the history of our forefathers. to To recognize that the people then on the east of the River Jordan We're your people just as we are your people. But help us not to make the same mistakes that they made. To only trust in you. To read your word. And now that we have Jesus, to focus on Jesus in everything that we do. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.